white meat and dark meat. Take it away! At this, the darkest hour of night, when the moon has gone coal black, we gather around the cauldron and revive and recall the spirits who passed long ago, and whose putrid energies light the way on our path to hell. And we see how they hold up. (laughs) (laughs) It's the When We Were Young podcast, and this is our Halloween seance and also Thanksgiving episode. (laughs) I'm Seth Pearson, the podcast host, most likely to gladly feast on those who would subdue me. I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host, most likely to seek out the dark forces and join them in their hellish crusade. (laughs) And I'm Chris, and I'm the podcast host, most likely to get stuck dancing with an incomprehensible high-pitched hairball at a party. (laughs) Hey, I have a name. (laughs) (laughs) It's Becky. It is Becky. Becky is it. Mm -hmm. Well, today, folks, we will be talking about The Addams Family and Addams Family Values, two films directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, written by different writers who we'll talk about soon, but most importantly, based on an original set of characters called The Addams Family, created by a man named Charles Samuel Adams. But before we go through his life history and begin our revisiting of these movies, I believe we have some new reviews. Ooh. We do indeed. Spooky. Uh, (laughs) Do you know Halloween was a few weeks ago? (laughs) (laughs) I'm continuing the mood, Becky. You have to sustain the illusion because we're coming between the holidays. (laughs) We have a new review from Jay Smurf. It is five stars. (laughs) I'm sorry, Jay Smurf. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> is Smurf his last name? Or hers? I believe it's some sort of anagram for his name. But <laughs> All right. Okay. Actually. Is his real name Jermf? A Smurf says, love, 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 with a five-star review. And in the review says, these three are reading my mind. I hate MASH so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's only two. That's only two out of three. I mean, that ain't bad. Never gotten past the theme song. Ace Ventura was always horrible, and I loved and owned the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, too. Yes. Not to mention DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Yes, Jay Smurf. (laughs) Best friends. Me and you. Forever, yes. It is amazing how that MASH theme song has united people. How universal the hated MASH. No, I had a friend who said that they listened to that episode and said that they had the exact same reaction and that they were like shocked because I think that was the first of our episodes they'd ever listened to. And then Uh they were just like, they instantly felt this like bond with us. Well, you started on a good one. That was the Fresh Prince episode, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it was indeed. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I don't feel bonded to any of these people at all. Uh, I can well, take that's because you're locked in a cage in the corner. I mean, what I do on my off time is one thing. Uh, but we do appreciate your five-star review, uh, Mr. or Ms. J. Smurf. Uh, <laughs> and we look forward to any other reviews or suggestions you may have for future episodes of the show. 
Absolutely. Maybe MASH. We can finally get past those opening credits. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Not that I actually want to do that on the podcast, but I think it would be really interesting to just, like, see what happens after those fucking credits. (laughs) It's just a blank screen for, like, 22 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) One of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Cherished to this day. (laughs) But not by us. Do you know why the ratings for the MASH finale were so big? Because they're so happy it was finally over. (laughs) They never had to hear that theme song ever again. (laughs) (laughs) today we are talking about the creepy kooky mysterious spooky and altogether ooky adam's family could someone define ooky for me (laughs) chris ooky is a feeling you have deep inside it's when you get the shakes like ooh. oh it's when you get the shivers like whoa it's when a ghost goes through you (laughs) And that feeling you have. It's when a ghost penetrates you, Chris. <laughs> I don't think I've ever felt ooky before. <laughs> well, there's a first time for everything. All right. Chris, ooky is the feeling you have when you can't rhyme another word with spooky. <laughs> <laughs> it's the feeling of desperation. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys happen to watch the Adams Family theme song? What do you mean? Like the opening credits from the original show? I've seen show? it a million times. I did not rewatch it in uh, anticipation of well, this. But... There's, There's a lion. And they're spooky. No, they the Adams family. Yeah, wait, I can't. <laughs> That's totally it. You nailed it. <laughs> I kind of remember da, the da, lyrics. The Adams family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember them. <laughs> they're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're all together ooky. The Adams Family. The house is a museum. When people come to see them, they really are a scream. The Adams Family. Neat. Sweet. Petite. So we just watched the opening credits to the old uh, Adams Family, the, what is it, 1950s? 1960s. 1960s, the black and white uh, TV show. There was a lion in their living room. <laughs> I think it was supposed to be one of the members of the family dressed up in a costume. Oh, like, for sure. During a little performance. Maybe that was Cousin It back then. <laughs> <laughs> Cousin Gur. <laughs> It's really interesting watching that now because it has been like decades and I used to watch it on Nick at Night. What was the Adams Family in response to like the 1960s like Donna Reed kind of sitcoms of the family? And this is like, oh, it, they're so different. They're wearing black and <laughs> oh, they like uh, dark things. <laughs> yeah, well, it's based on cartoons from the New Yorker made by a Seth said Charles Adams who I assume didn't come from an actual family like this but <laughs> maybe it's a documentary who knows yeah and those are from 1938 so they're kind of like in reaction to rich people I think and like the eccentricities of rich people hmm. just to give a little bit more detail on the originator of these characters Charles Samuel Adams was born in 1912 in Westfield, New Jersey. He became a cartoonist for The New Yorker and was one of their earliest regular cartoonists on staff. And eventually he met his first wife, Barbara Jean Day, who purportedly resembled his cartoon character Morticia Adams, who's the matriarch of the family. And the marriage ended eight years later after Adams, who hated small children, refused to adopt one. And 1942 also saw the release of the first collection of his drawings, Drawn and Quartered. Well, if you hate children, I think it's probably a good thing that you don't <laughs> adopt one. So. Yeah, exactly. But I, but I do think that 
like it says about the kind of uh, his wife's uh, somewhat looking like Morticia Adams and also about not wanting to adopt small children, it kind of makes sense intuitively the, that he would create a family of characters that is very react, very much reacting against the normal roles of that and the normal mm. kind of things that kids do. Yeah, I think most, if not all, of the cartoons were just one panel. The characters didn't have names at that point, so it was very kind of up to interpretation what exactly the family was like you didn't necessarily know the relationships between the characters you just kind of picked it up through context of the cartoons yeah and as an as an example i found one of the very very earliest adams family cartoons and i don't even know if these characters had any names yet but as you'll see like the visual style completely nails the aesthetic of the adams family from the very beginning and they're like a bunch about to like Dump a cauldron of something on a bunch of Christmas carolers. Yeah, it's the opening scene from the first movie. And there are many other, the baby thing at the end of the first movie that Morticia knits to Mm -hmm. tell Gomez she's pregnant. That was also a cartoon. Um, There's a lot of direct references to the cartoons that I think were done. Some of them were done in the TV show and then some of them were also just resurrected for the movie. So yeah, so we had many collections of his cartoons that were released and were very successful. And then in the 60s, the Adams Family television series began um, with help from Charles Adams, the humorist. Uh, and all he had to do was kind of flesh out the roles and names of these characters in the family. Uh, and the series ran on ABC for two seasons from 1964 to 1966. That's it? That's it. The Munsters also premiered the same month in Wait. 1964. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I thought the Munsters was like a reaction to the Adams Family. Like, no. oh, the Adams Family's gone. Let's have our own, like, another network had a different... This is like a Volcano Dante's Peak situation. Yeah, wow. exactly. Uh, they both premiered on the same day. So the Adams Family was based on, obviously, these cartoons. The Munsters was based on the idea of, like, the universal... Mm-hmm. Um, Dracula, Frankenstein, all those um, universal horror characters. I don't know if they possibly knew that like one of the other networks had something in development and, and really quickly conceived it, but it was ABC was the Adams Family, CBS was the Munsters, and they both ran for only two seasons. So it was the exact same timeline. They were wow. also canceled like right around the same month. And so... Adam's Family only ever aired 64 episodes. The Munsters had 70. And that was it. So it, wow. it is strange that a show became such a classic so briefly. And the, I think the reason that the shows were canceled was because it was kind of overkill on family monster shows. And so people just kind of got sick of it. And it just didn't have legs. Yeah. So... Uh- <laughs> I learned, guys. (laughs) Yeah, I I had no idea about that before, and I watched them so much, like you, Becky, on Nick at Night. It's just seeing so many episodes of the original show that I had no idea it was only two seasons. That's nuts. I mean, granted, it is a lot more episodes than seasons have now, Mm -hmm. but still. Yeah, it would take like three or four seasons to get to 64 episodes now. Oh, wait, 64 episodes? Yeah. That's a lot per season. 
There, yeah, there wasn't a lot of competition. Back then. <laughs> and Charles Adams was also a friend of and an influence on a great deal of cultural luminaries, including filmmakers like Alfred Hitchcock, who referenced his cartoons in several of his movies, mm-hmm. and also the sci-fi legendary author Ray Bradbury, who was a close friend, and they collaborated. And then several decades after the original show, the Adamses and their family and their house were spirited onto the silver screen. <laughs> in two film adaptations entitled The Adams Family and Adams Family Values. So there was a big chunk of time there between the TV show being canceled and then the movie coming out. Yes, the first movie came out uh, November 22nd, 1991. But in the interim, The Adams Family was animated on a Scooby-Doo show in the 70s. Oh. Jodie Foster voiced Pugsley in one of the animated shows. So it was still around, like, in the cultural zeitgeist. As a kind of introductory question, now that we've gotten through the biography of the person who originated this. (laughs) The full biography. What was your first experience with The Addams Family? Did you watch either of these movies or both of them growing up? Are you asking about my first ook? I'm asking when you first felt... A little looky. My experience with these is pretty limited. I think I saw the Munsters on Nick at Night, but I don't know that I ever saw the Adams Family show. I don't think it was playing on Nick at Night or whatever I was watching. I could I be uh, confused also. Yeah. <laughs> I may have Maybe watched, you love the Munsters. I may have watched the Munsters on Nick at Night. And oh, just is this think like it was a Bernstein Bears situation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or Shazam. <laughs> Kazam, Shazam. It's oh. like the Adams actually never existed. <laughs> as far as the movies go, I saw them both on video, so I wasn't like clamoring to see them in the theaters or anything. What were you clamoring to see in the theaters at the time? In 1991. What was Calista Flockhart in? <laughs> <laughs> Probably high school. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just like standing outside of high school, like, Calista. <laughs> I'm going to follow you someday. (laughs) You go to high school, you graduate, and you become Allie McBeal. You don't know what any of this means now, Callista, but you will. I went back and, like, shoved her out of the way of oncoming traffic and stuff to make sure that Allie McBeal would happen. (laughs) So I had slightly negative feelings toward both of these movies, but for different reasons. The first movie, I admired some of the humor, but I did not like the story. In fact, I think it might have been one of the first times that I ever looked at a movie plot and thought, I don't think that makes sense. Like, (laughs) we were talking in a previous episode, I know, that sometimes when we were young, we thought that it was our fault if we didn't understand something, and we didn't really understand that the movie itself could be imperfect or be missing some details or just kind of contradict itself. And this is one of those movies that I, like, distinctly remember feeling like, I think there's something wrong with this movie. (laughs) The second movie... I was disturbed by. So I enjoyed the movie (laughs) more. But I thought they killed Amanda, the blonde girl scout character. (laughs) You are not alone. I know. I saw that when I was researching this. And they had to... So there's a... We're getting a little bit ahead of it, but there's a scene where you see her family on the plane when uh, the baby flies up into the sky and it's kind of, it just looks like a generic reaction shot of it could be anyone, but yeah. it's her family. Oh. But they had to reshoot that because people in the audience were too disturbed by the fact that they had killed <laughs> a little girl. And the by like in- a, a burning, right? Yeah, they burn her at stake, or at least it's implied that Wednesday is about to do that. And then 
I just was like, that's too dark. That's too far. I don't like these characters anymore. And well, you I, went alone. <laughs> yeah. I didn't notice that airplane scene afterwards, or I didn't notice that it was the same characters because it's, you kind of just see them in profile. And at some point, I know I like either, re- I don't think I really rewatched this whole movie, but I saw that scene again and I was like, oh, like she's alive. <laughs> like I was actually like really happy and it made me much more comfortable with these movies that they had not <laughs> just like murdered a little girl. <laughs> So, but yeah, I think that kind of like just brought my feelings on that second movie down a little bit. And I was like, ooh, I don't, I don't feel good about that You're movie. You're like, ook. I, I felt like ooky. This. Now you've experienced what ook is. No, he, I've been de No, he went from ook to spook. Oh. We all go through this process, Chris. You'll understand <laughs> eventually. Becky? I remember seeing both of these movies in theaters. I remember like a packed house. And I remember like... There were a lot of families there, but it, everyone was enjoying the movie. Like, it, I can recall, like, nonstop laughter, like, kids there, adults there. Um, I also remember buying them on VHS for McDonald's. <laughs> nice. Because as we've mentioned in previous uh, podcasts, I think for the Don Bluth one, mm-hmm. where McDonald's used to sell VHS tapes. <laughs> yeah, I distinctly remember these movies being sold, and I was never... I think, interested in actually owning them, but I do remember them being available should I want them with my fries. (laughs) And see, now when I go to McDonald's with a pile of VHS tapes and try to sell them, they kick me out and call me a nuisance. (laughs) I really loved these movies when I was younger, and Christina Ricci was probably my number one, like, favorite actress when I was younger, and I think it had something to do with these movies. Mm -hmm. Like, I followed her career following these movies, and I was always excited when she was in something new. Yeah, there were a lot of child stars, you know, at this time, as there are at at every time, because movies need (laughs) children in them sometimes. Because we don't live in children of men, and children continue to be born. (laughs) Because Hollywood is a cruel dream factory that requires children as fuel. But I think these movies kind of made her stand out as more of a genuine actress, because she was doing more than just playing a little girl. She's Mm -hmm. playing a really fucked up little girl. And you could tell that she she brought a lot to this role, and it wasn't... It wasn't normal child acting. So I, I feel like she always kind of stood out as a kind of an exciting star for children. Yeah. And there was, I mean, Pugsley did fine, but Christina Ricci, I don't know if it was the character or the fact that she actually was a good actress, but like she has some great comedic timing and she has a lot of great lines. Mm-hmm. Like oh maybe, God, maybe Pugsley so has many. some like setup, but she has the punchline a lot of the time and she solves it. Are you sure they're real lemons? Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll buy a cup if you buy a box of my delicious Girl Scout cookies. Do we have a deal? Are they made from real Girl Scouts? My experience uh, was I saw them both in theaters, um, loved them from the first time I saw them, had them on VHS forever and ever. I don't think we ever bought VHS tapes at McDonald's. But I'm also a bit adrift as to where we did purchase VHS tapes. (laughs) They just seem to appear in my life and just be there. But I absolutely adored these movies from the first time I saw them for the sight gags and visual jokes and the performances. I mean, getting into more of the cast, not just Christina Ricci as Wednesday, 
but like Raul Julia as Gomez Adams, the patriarch of the Adams family, and Angelica Houston, who plays Morticia, and Christopher Lloyd, who plays Uncle Fester. All of these really stood out to me as being just really great performances. Even at the time when they came out, like I said, I'd seen a lot of it on Nick at Night, so I just knew it as this very goofy thing, and it was like, some of the imagery was kind of spooky or whatever, but it wasn't very goth to put it one way. (laughs) And like these movies are very goth (laughs) and also very morbid and also very absurdist. And like the humor is very, um, this was before I saw any Monty Python, but it was kind of Monty Python-esque as well. Um, But I, like Becky, especially gravitated toward Christina Ricci as Wednesday Adams. Um, I've rewatched these movies uh, most years, <laughs> like I most minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I watch these movies usually once a year um, eh. around the holidays, but most specifically like Thanksgiving for me at least. Yeah, Thanksgiving and Halloween. Yeah. It's kind of the season for it for me. Um, and I realized, like, especially in uh, rewatching it this time with kind of that critical eye that we use when we're watching things for our podcast, I realized she was actually in that character were like role models for me um wow that actually explains it really it shouldn't explain a lot shouldn't it explain a whole lot so the adams family the first movie was produced by paramount uh had a budget of 30 million dollars and grossed uh 113 million and a half dollars at the domestic box office So it was quite a success uh, financially. I believe it also kicked off the whole trend of turning old TV shows into movies. I mean, that I I feel like that was very, I feel like that's been a mainstay in Hollywood filmmaking for decades. But I do think it was kind of, it marked a new era of that. Absolutely. After that came our favorite Brady Bunch movies. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, then it just spiraled. (laughs) And then it just spiraled. So the movie was, again, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who was previously a cinematographer. And uh, if you guys out, if you ladies and gents out there are cinephiles, you will love the Coen brothers as we do. And Barry Sonnenfeld was the cinematographer for the Coen brothers in their earlier movies. Really? I didn't know that. Really helped them develop their visual style of storytelling in movies like Raising Arizona. Um, And... So it's really fascinating, like, for this podcast in preparation, I actually listened to another podcast uh, that Barry Sonnenfeld was on with the comedian Kevin Pollack, just talking for hours and hours about his background and how he developed his career. You're cheating on us? Not cheating, just sharing. Just sharing. You're still... We're in an open podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were all up front about this arrangement, Chris. I thought this was a Monaga cast. Adam's Family was Barry Sonnenfeld's directorial debut. Wow. Um, Barry Sonnenfeld ended up getting the directing gig because Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam both passed. And uh, the producer, Scott Rudin, wanted to go to someone who was a visual stylist to direct the film instead of a comedy director. Yeah, there were also a lot of cast members who turned down roles in this that were notable. Uh, Anthony Hopkins turned down the role of Fester to play Hannibal Lecter. So (laughs) he got an Oscar for that. So that was probably the right choice. Uh, Cher really wanted to play Morticia. I can see that. I can totally Mm -hmm. see that. I can totally see that as well. 
Like, as iconic as I think Angelica Houston is in this role, I do think Cher could have worked it, too. Cher's a great actress. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danny DeVito and Bob Hoskins also turned down playing Fester. Oh, I was thinking Gomez, even. Bob Hoskins. But I could see both of them, actually. Yeah. Strangely enough, um, for a movie of this kind of blockbustery studio type, this was actually nominated for two Academy Awards, speaking of Oscars, uh, both for art direction and for costume design. Unfortunately, it won neither. Um, But the film itself was written by Caroline Thompson and Larry Wilson. Uh, And Caroline Thompson also wrote Edward Scissorhands and Nightmare Before Christmas. And Larry Wilson also wrote Beetlejuice and many episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Wow, all of that makes so much sense. Right, like it makes it in, this was the first time I was reading about this stuff in preparation for the episode. And it really just like all of a sudden it kind of makes so many parts of Mm -hmm. this movie and the sensibility that carries over kind of through both movies. It just made them really understandable. Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who aren't quite as pop culturally educated as we are who think that Adam's Family is a Tim Burton movie because it does have that look. It's kind of a different tone than most of his movies, but you could be forgiven for kind of mistaking it visually. It it kind of feels like it's, and I don't mean this in a bad way, like it's trying to be a Tim Burton movie Mm because Tim Burton was like very, very popular at that time. But it feels like it was, it's interesting that he was offered um, the directing role for this movie because it, it it's not that far off from what a Tim Burton movie might have been. In some ways. Well, and I, I would definitely say that all three of them are directors who just use visual style to tell their stories, like in ways that many other kinds of genre directors don't. But, but it's but got I'm- the dark, it's got the dark macabre comedy, slightly like a, a slightly creepy carnival um, atmosphere to it, which Absolutely. I think is but all I, about Tim Burton. But I also think it's a lot more hyper. I think it's like Tim Burton on a lot of caffeine pills. Like, I think there's something about Barry Sonnenfeld's filmmaking that is very manic at times. Yeah, I In think a way that I think is mm-hmm. more kind of sedate a lot of times with Tim Burton. Yeah, it I, depends on the movie, though, because, like, Beetlejuice is pretty w- wacky at times. Totally, totally. And it's also interesting to me, because this is a similar writer, it makes me wonder how much of that um, came from the writing and not just from Tim Burton's direction. I would say this mo- these movies are more, like, set-up punchline, set-up punchline, like, snappier and comedic than Tim Burton's movies, which ha- are more, like, poetic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and his sense of humor, I think, is a lot closer to, like, Tina Fey almost or like or even to throw it back to a classic Hollywood reference Howard Hawks where like the almost every line of dialogue is a setup a punchline or both Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like certain scenes even exist only for like only for punchlines Mm -hmm. instead of the fact that like most jokes are written into stories but I think this one kind of works its way around different clever lines and and jokes. Another funny aspect of the pedigree of the creative talent behind this movie, uh, it was edited by Dee Dee Allen, who's like an historic Hollywood film editor who edited like Reds and Bonnie and Clyde. Hmm. And and also The Addams Family. (laughs) Um, The cast included actors like Raul Julia, Christopher Lloyd, um, Angelica Houston, and all those other folks. Um, What is Pugsley's name? Uh, Jimmy Workman. So Jimmy Workman also, he played Pugsley. Do you know who his sister is? No idea. Ariel Winter from Modern Family. What? 
Um, and they have a really crazy stage mom story where they're like estranged from their parents because their parents like work them really hard as like stage parents growing up. That is horrifying. Yeah, I think he's only in these two movies and like as good as it gets. <laughs> and he's like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was the right decision. <laughs> Good going, Jimmy Workman. So that's kind of funny because uh, Jackie Coogan played the original Uncle Fester on the TV show. And he is known for the Coogan Law, which says that parents have to like put aside a certain percentage of kids, mm. their kids' money into a trust fund so that they can't spend it all because that's what happened to him. So it's kind of funny that that also happened apparently yeah. to another doughy child. <laughs> yeah. Did you call him a doughy child? I did. The reviews for The Addams Family uh, were relatively positive to middling. A lot of critics appreciated the sense of humor, but kind of felt the story didn't hold together too well. I set aside just a couple excerpts, one from the Orlando Sentinel's Jay Boyar. One reason that this movie works as well as it does is that everyone takes everything completely seriously. The world of The Addams Family may be amusing to us, but to them it's just life. Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman said it might have helped had the film included a few more representatives of the straight world. As it is, there is almost nothing for the family to play off. We're shut up in that mansion right along with them, and the kookiness grows fatally quaint. But what about the ookiness? Remains at moderate levels for the next two weeks, and then a dry front comes in. Moderate ookiness. So we always like to check in with what Rita Kempley of the Washington Post thinks because we have to check the temperature. We just love I forgot her. if we like her or we hate her. Guys. I think it depends. I think she, it we depends go, on where she's going. Yeah. We just follow Rita where she's headed. She has her good moments and her bad moments. So what she had to say was the Adams family is more laughs than a casket full of whoopee cushions at a mortician's convention. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, Rita. I don't know about your math on that one. You really, you're not sketching out. Wait, so does she like it? Yes. <laughs> how, okay. Wait, but how funny is that? I don't think it is very is, funny. Wait, it, is it one coffin full of whoopee cushions? A casket full. Yeah, just one casket. At a mortician's convention, so. You've got more caskets. No, just one. Also, like, why would whoopee cushions in a casket be funny? Because <laughs> don't they need someone to sit on them? If you put a corpse on whoopee cushions, like, maybe some will come out, sure. But it's not going to keep going down from there. You guys, this podcast is really going to be about just whether Rita Kempley's reviews of movies hold up. They don't, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Rita's Corner is now a dead segment. <laughs> Rest in peace. I remember the day I needed the ball, a little bit of pepper. The next thing you know, coming in me was a hand with the fingers I stepped. Now I try to play it on off and act like I'm having a ball. But what do I see? Yo, a perm with feet, standing about three feet tall. Reviews of the film were, you know, kind of mild to moderate. Let's talk about your reactions to rewatching The Addams Family. I still loved it. <laughs> I still really loved it. It's really interesting that both of these movies are like holiday movies. They work for Halloween, Christmas, and Thanksgiving. And it's just like the most perfect two holiday movies for this entire season. And I think that is a reason why I kept watching it over the years, besides it being just so funny. Um, and I definitely have... Um, 
a favorite between these two, but I'm just talking about the first one. This is not her favorite, in case you didn't pick up on that subtle cue. <laughs> this is the first time I watched it with, like, a critical eye. Like, I usually just watch it, and, and it, it's kind of like chicken soup. Like, it just feels good to watch mm-hmm. it. Like, I know the quotes, and and it's just reliable and funny. Um, but I, I try to tried to watch it with fresh eyes and I was very pleasantly surprised just how inventive I thought it was um, just filmmaking wise. I thought it was really inventively filmed um, and, and conceptualized. And I thought the acting was great. Like they're, they're taking it so serious and that's like the magic to it is that they're just so dead serious um, and they're just really good actors. Like they're selling it. Yeah, I mean, like, enough cannot be said, in my opinion, about especially the performances of Raul Julia and Angelica Houston. Like, Oh, they're I, such a hot couple. I earnestly, like, I <laughs> earnestly want to emulate their relationship. <laughs> like, they are, like, I love the writing of their relationship, but, like, their performances of it are just so fantastic and are so fun to watch. I'm a little more mixed. <laughs> <laughs> you are a little more mixed. Not to open up this can of worms again, but I had a similar reaction to The Birdcage, which is that I really think the writing is funny and the performances are great from everyone and it's a really fun ensemble. And I'm perfectly, like, happy watching this movie. But on a story level, I just don't think it makes any sense and it bothers me. Can I take a guess at what you had a problem with? Is it the fact that Christopher Lloyd as Gordon looks identical, like... And acts identical to what Fester is. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. So let's, it's important to point out the plots of these two movies are practically identical in the sense that they both revolve around the fortune and fate of Uncle Fester. He is kind of the pivotal, like, linchpin of the family in these two movies, at least. And in the first movie, it's about Uncle Fester returning from having been lost in the Bermuda Triangle for a very long time. But supposedly he's actually not Uncle Fester because he's Gordon. The family quickly realizes that this isn't the real Uncle Fester, and it turns out that it's this doppelganger named Gordon, and he's a con man, and his con man mother uh, are... Con woman. Let's be PC here. Con mom. (laughs) Con mom. Screenplay idea. Uh, CBS procedural. (laughs) Bye, guys. We're going to go write a screenplay. You guys, uh, we're going to be right back. We just got to register something real quick. Copyright when we were young. It won't take long to write it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to stop you right there, though. Because, like, is he a con man or is he actually Fester and he was adopted and he was actually struck by lightning and forgot? Because I feel like at the end of this movie, they have, like, some justification where I'm like, wait a minute, are they... Are they kidding? You or- guys, we've, we've got a lot to address here. There's so much to unpack in the lore of the Adams Family. Um, Chris, to address your criticism head on, this movie's plot and the plot of its successor are patently ludicrous. And they are, especially in this one, like a game of mousetrap in the sense that it's this Rube Goldbergian contraption of just one mishap leading to the next. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Of course, any number of criticisms and accusations of unreality are worthy of being lobbed at it because it is completely unreal. But that's the point. And but it doesn't make sense. Like it literally, in, it, in it's what, impossible. Wh- Wait, which part? What's which I mean? What's impossible? The fact that he looks part? identical to Fester. Right, let or? me go through <laughs> the plot because I actually wrote it out trying to figure it out. Like not even just pointing out flaws, but I was like, 
okay, does this make sense? So he disappeared 25 years ago in the Bermuda Triangle. And he was, what, like 20, 25? Sure. Like, at the most. Wait, how, how, where are you getting that from? The movie. They didn't say his age, Well, you could just tell by how 25 old he years is. earlier than oh. he is now. It, so, okay, he disappears. We all know what happens when people get lost in the Bermuda Triangle. I don't understand what you're not getting here. <laughs> he gets amnesia, right? Wait, so yes. is... This, it, this is really Uncle Fester. It is really it, Uncle Fester. Yes. Wait, no, but that, he's correct. Is that what the movie is positing? That yes. it really is yes. Uncle yes. Fester? Yes. Okay. He gets amnesia, and the woman, Abigail Craven, finds him and takes him in. Come, Mom. So she, he has to be young, because otherwise he wouldn't be adopted by this random woman if he was, like, 40. <laughs> Unless she just lies and says, hey, well, I'm your mom? Yeah, she's, she's con mom. So but she's looking she for someone. why would she do that? Exactly. The reason she would do that is that he's an easy mark. He's an easy person to manipulate and control and, you know, like, is a way for her to get her schemes across. Okay. So then he has hair. <laughs> he has hair. He didn't have hair when, a chi- when he was a child. And he, we see him shave it off. Oh, that's true. Okay. <laughs> so she... Takes him in, I guess maybe she wants to groom a little mini con baby while he's, I don't know, <laughs> 20, 25. Con, <laughs> con mom. <laughs> then they, I guess, end up in, where's Adam's family? In California, I think. Sure. So they're in California, and they. she's a loan shark, so she gives her money, gives money to Dan Hedaya's Tully character, who is the Adam's family lawyer, and then he doesn't have money to repay them. So while Gordon is beating him up, he's like, hey, you kind of look like Uncle Fester. So is it, it's a coincidence that yes. this family happens to like be chosen for this scheme by someone who knows the family. It's, like, it's a wild coincidence. It's a wild coincidence. And then, I don't I mean... Ugh. <laughs> Oh, I, just I, I get it. I was okay. I was with you this time watching it where I was like, huh? Is he really him? Are they just going to, is he really not Fester, but they're just going to lie and he's just going to pretend he's Fester and nobody's going to say anything? Like I was confused. Whereas, So in- one of the reasons for this was that the cast all wanted it to be the real Fester because the original version, he was not the real Fester, which at least makes some more sense. And then Christina Ricci was chosen, apparently, by the cast to deliver an impassioned plea that he should be the real Uncle Fester. So they changed it. It's fine, but then they, I guess, didn't change... Like, they didn't rethink certain elements. So it just kind of contradicts itself, which really irritates me. (laughs) And irritated me when I was, like, eight years old watching this movie. And I was like, I don't think that makes sense. I think I never paid attention, really, to the logistics and logic of the plot for this movie because I was just entranced by everything else happening. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And no, that's, <laughs> no, I'm in complete agreement with both of you. The plot of this movie is patently ridiculous. Yes. It makes very little linear sense. I think it's... A, like, especially not like in terms of like three-act structure... Except in the very loosest kind of way. Well, there's almost no actual story to this movie in terms of right. an emotional... Like, there, no one really goes through anything. It's a it's a comedy where they're taking it seriously, but you're never worried that 
something really bad will happen right, right. or somebody will die or it's it's zany. Right. The characters take it seriously, but it's not pretending to be telling a serious story. No, and that's fine, but I also just don't get what the rules of this world are or this family. Like, they talk a lot about killing people, but then they don't ever seem to actually kill people. So I just want to know, like, <laughs> where do we stand? Like, what have they done in the past? What have they not done? Who knows what? Like, I, I mean, do agree with that review. I think it was Entertainment Weekly that said that they wanted more interactions between the Adams family and the real world because their main interactions in this movie are with a criminal woman, her criminal son, and a crooked lawyer. None of those are like really normal people. And I think that this movie is best when it does have scenes like the Girl Scout scene, when it's just an ordinary girl reacting to this craziness. Mm -hmm. And there's there's very little of that. It doesn't really even come in until the end of the movie. It kind of feels like the plot of the movie starts at the very end of it. And this movie should really be about they get kicked out of their house and then have to like go get jobs and what happens then. In defense of how it's already laid out they needed to establish that world and i think that i think them getting kicked out of the house works as like a an act late act two um challenge for them Mm -hmm. um i've i just think it's funny that i'm i'm with you again on like do they kill people do they really want to die like they're actually just like really friendly harmless villains right and they're just really super goth (laughs) Right. No, that's the thing. And it's and and also it's like to me, so much of their power in their relations with other people in the real world derives from being able to say the shadiest, most smart ass thing at any given point in time, especially with Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's why she was like such a role model, is that she had like her her brain was her currency. And I think she's one of the more consistent characters, but then I feel like I feel like the writers don't don't all agree on this. And I, I feel like some of them have a different interpretation or think that they're more violent. Because there's a lot of jokes where, like, if you really think, like, oh, did they actually, like, massacre a bunch of people? Like, mm-hmm. I could accept that in a comedy if that was actually what happened. But it it's just, it's not consistent. Well, but I think that's, that is definitely carried through. I, I don't know. Like it, to me, it works with like because I don't see it as a PG thirteen movie being able to possibly get away with sh- depicting murders. But I could also believe that these characters would kill shitty people. But then, so there's like, they're a super rich family. Like he's on the cover of magazines, right? Mm-hmm. So they're obviously like known kind of celebrities in a way and I think it's kind of in a way making fun of the eccentricities of rich people and rich families but no they're not really celebrities I mean like Sally Jesse Raphael wants to put Gomez on blast because he keeps calling in live to a show but like that's the only like national platform he really has no Fester's on like a magazine cover or something like that but was it like Cigar Aficionado or something I, I don't know. Well, like, there, I, I don't, there are known, I mean, they're maybe not celebrity celebrities, but they're a known rich family, kind of like the Kennedys or the Gettys or something. They're not remotely that prominent in any version of the Adams family. I don't think that's accurate. I mean, to some, uh, to some extent, I'll agree with you that it is kind of like poking fun at freaky rich people. Um, but I also think it's kind of drawing from that kind of H.P. Lovecraft... Um, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe, like from kind of gothic tropes 
And especially in terms of the morbid sense of humor, um, especially in terms of like joking about torture and that kind of thing. I don't really get the rich satire, like the satirizing rich people, because to me, it just feels like it's like a Halloween haunted house. And the reason that they have a mansion is because there's like different rooms and it's like a different spooky thing in each room. And there's like secret passageways and there's a whole garden of creepy things. And also that's like, I would get, I would get that claim that it's about like mocking the rich if they were new money. Like if you saw them buying the Adams family mansion and like building it now, Mm -hmm. um, but it's like a really super old inherited house. And I think like we saw in that cartoon, like the house has been a character that's been there from the, from the beginning. Um, and also like the house, like Fester is kind of a central plot point in both of them. Cause like, or maybe not so much in the second one. Cause they don't really, she doesn't try to steal the house away from them. Um, but yeah, like the, the house is definitely a character that figures uh, significantly in both movies. Sure, but I just, I wish it had established, like, something that they had done and how much the outside world knew about them or didn't know. Because, like, sometimes people come into the house and are, like, creeped out by things, and sometimes they don't really react to what's going on. Like, Thing gets a job as a courier, and no one, like, is weirded (laughs) out by the fact that there's a hand crawling around. So, is this a world where lots of things like that happen, or is it only the Adams Family? Well, Chris, it's not called Things. It's called Things, so I think that implies that it's a singular. He was saying Thing. Well, but he... Well, if the... I don't think there are things all oh. around the world because there's only one thing. I get what you're saying, but it's just such a cartoon to me. It's like a live action yes. cartoon it's that like, I don't care. I do. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, it bothers me. It's like, I don't get interested or invested in anything that's happening because it contradicts itself like from scene to scene. I don't think it contradicts itself. I think the plot is intentionally ludicrous, but I think the characters are relatively consistent at their base, except for Fester, of course. So, I mean, like, did you did you like Angelica Houston's performance? Uh, college? Private tutors. Major? Spells and hexes. Liberal arts. Uh, what about your husband? Is he currently employed? He's going through a bad patch at the moment. But it's not his fault. Of course not. What is he? A loafer? A hopeless layabout? A shiftless dreamer? Not anymore. Her performance is great, and I think her character... So her and Wednesday, I think, are really consistent characters. The only thing that really confuses me is the death element of like Wednesday constantly trying to murder Pugsley and stuff and I'm like what are the consequences of that like are I they think immortal they're not real people <laughs> so they're, they're, they're just clearly cartoons. not even pretending to be real people in the real world the joke is that they're in the real world in the movie and so I, I do totally agree with both you Chris and with the Owen Gleiberman review that there aren't enough moments in this movie where they do have to be thrown at the real world. But then why not just show what happens when she hits Pugsley with a cleaver? But she never will because it's a cartoon and they're not going to kill anyone. But then what is she doing? It's like Like, in The Simpsons when like Homer is strangling Bart. Like, yeah. (laughs) 
like that, it's just he's not gonna kill his son like it's a cartoon and that's well, how i feel that works becky what if context. it bursts blood vessels in bart's neck <laughs> what if he has permanent tissue damage in his but spinal column that resulting show is from very that? consistent about the kinds of things that are happening this is constantly contradicting itself becky, and becky, is sometimes becky. asking you to take things a little more seriously than that and sometimes is basically a cartoon but you see, Chris, when the coyote keeps running really, really fast and it runs off the mountain and it runs halfway between one side of the canyon and the other, I really do see this movie as like a live action Looney Tune. So I don't understand how... Well, that's kind of my problem is that then we don't see, like, in The Simpsons, we see him strangling Bart, like, and it, we get it that he's not being injured. But this, she just, like, walks off with a cleaver or, like, shoots him with something and it looks very real and kind of like very violent but then it's like we don't ever see like what happens when she hits him with something or something like that like you'd want to see like, like an she, arrow coming out of his butt or something like the I don't know I don't know how you could do that in a PG-13 movie I just well, don't then but like I don't, <laughs> then why do it yeah. why do the movie at all well why not Burn make the jokes that work in the tone of the movie that you have like instead of just cutting away and be like I'm like she shoots an arrow into her brother's mouth like see it like popping out of the apple or something and it like didn't go in I would be fine with that but it's like it just kind of implies that characters are dying all the time and then not I I get that it just again does not bother me at all uh-huh. Um, I want to talk about just really funny lines that I love. <laughs> this podcast could be three hours of us quoting lines from this movie that we love. Oh, look, Tully is here, romping with Gate. <laughs> and it's like the gate of the house, like, trying to, like, eat Tully. Oh. That is romping one, that's with one of my favorites. Uncle Knickknack's winter wardrobe. Uncle Knickknack. <laughs> yes. That... I love that kind of stuff. The combination to the family vault is 2, 10, 11, which stands for eyes, fingers, and toes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think all of the jokes work still. Like, there wasn't any joke, like, set-up punchline kind of joke that didn't work for me. Like, I laughed at it all again. They see a man who represents himself as a fool for a client. And by God is my witness, I am that fool. <laughs> Let's play a game. It's called, Is There a God? <laughs> <laughs> you aren't kidding. This is just going to be quotes. <laughs> There's just the so funny. Did you find this movie funny? I found parts of it amusing. I really like Angelica Houston's performance. She was Golden Globe nominated for it. Ooh. So, And also, I, it's important to point out the lighting is that there is oh, one yes. specific light that is like just on this one sliver of Morticia's face yes. everywhere she walks, everywhere she goes throughout the entire movie. And that was like the one big note that Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, had for the DP he hired for this movie. That was like the one thing he controlled. Um, and I just feel like it instantly makes her look like such a classic Hollywood glamour queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a photographer, George Harrell, who was like the famous Hollywood portraitist to the stars. Um, and she totally looks like one of his prints. I've, uh, I noticed that, too. I, I love that little detail. Yeah, you can tell he's a cinematographer. And also, like, to know what Angelica Houston had to go through every day to get into this costume. She had eye lifts that were string and glue, like, to make her eyes slant more. She had fake nails every day, neck tucks every day. And uh, she was wearing a wire corset so that she could be as, like, shapely as she is. And so she wouldn't, she couldn't even sit down between 
takes and would get headaches like oh my god frequently so it's it's a comedic performance and she's really good in it but it's also like a very physical performance when you think of it in those terms and i think she's incredible like very very funny very very understated both she and wednesday are very understated christina ricci is wednesday they're very deadpan and i feel like that goes really well with the kind of goth aesthetic for me like Raul Julia as Gomez and just that character don't really work because they're kind of like a he's like more of a Latin lover kind of type it's there's nothing like very morbid about him like it doesn't really feel consistent with what the show or overall idea of this thing is is that these people are all like creepy like he's just not that creepy he's more like suave I like that though because it gives it something different where he's still kind of like erotic and into like really really dark Because these, this isn't supernatural in the sense of like horror creatures like vampires and Dracula. Right. So there has to be some force that gives it some erotic thrill. And that's a, in a PG-13, that's difficult too. So I think that's part of why it emphasizes those aspects. But he wasn't really all that gothic or freakish or whatever in the show. I think it's, I think no, that's pretty No, the original cartoon, though, he was a lot more disturbing looking. And so I think they took more of the show's approach. Yeah, and I think at a certain point, like Scott Rudin, the producer, even copped to them kind of really very largely having been influenced by the TV show, especially in the writing process. Yeah, and I just, I don't find that really works that well for me in this world and so fester also i remember not really liking the fester character when i was a kid and that carried through here and in part it's because he starts off as this kind of like unlikable goon but i think it would make it so much more sense if this was like kind of a more normal person who then had to go dress as fester and act this way in this house but there's just not enough contrast between him being already like a creepy goon And then going into this house and being like, oh, I guess I have to act like a creepy goon now. Like, I think you could get so much more comedy out of someone that we could relate to having to go into this situation. Yeah. Yeah, And just I want to know, like, more about Marticia because she married into this family. (laughs) So where does she come from? (laughs) What's her thing? What's her thing? It's she seems so much more like the family that I wish like it was her family. I know that I'm like rewriting everything now, but they did (laughs) kind of change a lot of the character relationships like from the cartoon to the show and from the show to the movie. I can't picture (laughs) what's her family like. Like, I just want more information about where these characters come from. I just, it feels really half-baked to me, like that no one has thought through any of this. So in short, Becky and Seth think it holds up. Chris wants more information (laughs) and a page one rewrite. (laughs) Yep. Um, I have to say the most dated thing about this movie is the MC Hammer music. Most certainly. (laughs) Most certainly. Unabashedly so. Yeah. Yeah, that did not, that didn't, I think we can all agree that that did not age well. They do what they want to do. Say what they want to say think what they want to think i mean there's so much detail in this movie and i love all of the family members yeah like all of the love, creepy yes. crazy uh like just family members when they have parties yeah that's one of the things that i like best about this movie in fact my favorite character is probably margaret who is tully's wife uh-huh. <laughs> and how she falls in love with cousin it like i wish that there was I more of that. that kind of stuff or even in fester like kind of seeing him like warm up to this family and like that's my that's the only thing that kind of emotionally gets me in this movie i love margaret she's like one of my favorite sub characters in the adamses 
And just to like go off of Cousin It a little bit, that wig was 35 pounds. <laughs> and he had to wear a <laughs> neck brace in order to wear it. Yeah, and they, they shaved, I think, like 10 pounds off of the, the wig for the <laughs> sequel. But still, that's insane. <laughs> and uh, he was played by actor John Franklin, who did a monologue from Hamlet in that voice for <laughs> the audition. <laughs> and he came up with the voice. Yeah. I also just, as a little kid, I really liked visual effects like I was really into that and this movie has some great visual effects with um, the hand with uh, Thing Um, you can kind of tell it's a green screen so the effects don't totally hold up but I felt like watching it I was still just as entertained as I was like watching him spin a roller skate or like go throughout the house yeah I mean it's difficult to talk about these things in a compelling way because uh, it's a completely visual medium. Uh, or in this case, we're talking about the visual aspect of a medium like film. Um, but it's really, I think, important to point out just stylistically, visually, how imaginative this movie is. Like you were saying, Becky, like every little teeny tiny character, every little situation has so much detail just crammed into every part. Um, And it reminds me of Tim Burton. It reminds me of um, later directors like Guillermo del Toro, who just make these very visually rich things. And I mean, like that's part of why for me, the movie works, even though the plot is completely absurd. Yeah. I just, I think this movie is probably responsible for why the Brady Bunch movies were ever made. But I think that those movies basically do the same thing of showing this family that has created kind of like their own world and Mm -hmm. is completely out of touch with everything. But those movies are about like every single person reacts to them in the same way and in that they're out of touch. And it's just very consistent. And I just wish this movie had done a little bit more of that. Like, I enjoy the visuals as well and the performances, but I'm just like a story person. And if the story doesn't make sense, I'm just not interested, really. Like, none of the other stuff can make up for it for me. So I feel like that kind of wraps up our first movie. So we'll move on now to Adam's Family Values, released on November 19th, 1993. It was produced for a budget of $75 million, and it made $48.9 million. Womp womp. Really? Fail horns. Family, new baby in the house makes three. Wednesday, Pugsley learned you ring. Fest up, grandmama, and things. Wait, can't forget cousin it. Tag team, rips another party hit. It's the Adams Family movie theme. Gomez, Morticia, come on, sing. Barry Sonnenfeld once again returned to the helm. In my research, kind of all of the reviews of the movie, whether they were positive or overall negative, did cite kind of Barry Sonnenfeld's directorial vision and visual style as things that really helped the movie and were a big asset. This time around, the screenplay is credited to Paul Rudnick. We know who that is. Libby. 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 (laughs) It's a screenwriter of In-N-Out. Yeah. You looked at me like you didn't know. (laughs) Sister Act was his first movie and was a gigantic hit. Uh, And this was only his second script made into a film. He later wrote Sister Act 2 as well. And in and out And in and out This movie, also improbably enough, was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Art Direction Set Direction. It also did not win. 
The reviews for Adam's Family Values were decidedly more positive than for the predecessor. Edward Guthman of the San Francisco Chronicle says, Adam's Family Values is so much better than the first film, partly because Sonnenfeld, who made his directing debut with the first film, has refined his directing chops, but mostly because Rudnick has contributed a delightful mock macabre script. And then Empire's Angie Origo says, It is a rare feat to make a sequel better than its predecessor, but here Sonnenfeld manages to do just that. With such a strong adult cast, it comes as a surprise when the children steal the show. With such dry and morbid humor, it feels that at times he was filming more for the parental viewers than the children. Yes, and I liked it more because of it. I don't think we can go much further without saying that we will all pretty much have loved this movie a lot more than the first. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. No, this is the Adam's Family Values is clearly a better film than the first in every single way. I was watching this and the whole time I just wanted to talk to Chris and be like, Joan Cusack, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So please, let's just talk about Joan Cusack. (laughs) Paul Rudnick and Joan Cusack together forever. (laughs) Paul and Joan, Paul and Joan. Joan Cusack, this is the the best role she's ever had. Like, she is amazing in this movie. She's it really great. came across to me rewatching, and again, I watch these movies usually once a year each, if not multiple times for values. It really came through to me this time how much of my personal taste in movies and my own movie history Joan Cusack has figured into. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. more so as the day as the days go by. She pops up in these most random places. She was in some of those John Hughes movies. Truly in the most yeah. random places. And there are a lot of, you know, random actors, character actors in these movies. Nathan Lane is in this. Um, so many many others as well but Cynthia Nixon Cynthia Nixon Wait, who's Cynthia Nixon in she's this? A, one of the potential babysitters that they oh interview. yeah okay she looks really strange but Joan Cusack is beyond fucking incredible in this movie the moment I saw her on screen I laughed it's truly <laughs> like just like, like looking at her immediately her face is funny her like fa- <laughs> and like her face conveys exactly what she is like I I Hopefully you'll feel the same way, Chris, but I feel like the character development in this is a lot clearer and stronger for basically everyone, like including in the family, but especially with having Debbie be the kind of central supervillain. Well, absolutely. It's because this movie has contrast and she contrasts with the Adams family. And it's not that she's like a super nice person. In fact, in a way, she kind of belongs there because she's a homicidal maniac. But that's funny. Like... And you know exactly, like, who she is, what she's thinking. Like, it's just, like, the comedy becomes so much more clear because there's not all these questions about, like, wait, is he really Fester? Like, you're not concerned about all the plot that doesn't make sense. And she's just such a strong presence. And it, I think it's really rare in a movie like this that has an established cast that is already really kind of outlandish and crazy characters to then like be able to put in like a villain character who is equally like compelling and feels like she really belongs in this universe. And yeah, I mean, she's just hilarious. And and if anything, I think it kind of addresses the specific way you made that critique of the first movie in that as opposed to these, you know, cartoony, cartoony people who are, prepared to throw a hatchet or prepared to throw on the electric chair. Uh, Debbie is literally the person who throws a toaster into the jacuzzi Mm -hmm. and initiates, which initiates a series of escalating crazy murder attempts. Like she's the person who's committed to actually making it happen 
on screen, obviously. Yeah, it's interesting that, like, these people are, like, wearing dark clothes and they're talking about murder all the time and they really like sex and they're really dark. But it's this, like, woman that's blonde in this white outfit that is actually the villain. And these people are just, like, kind of goth and dark, but they're very friendly, good people at heart. And they're up against somebody who literally would murder them. And I also think that the setting of much of the plot of this film at a summer camp is also another great way to both have the Adamses play out against the real world and also to do more of, Chris, what you were pointing out earlier, like in making fun of rich people. Because it's literally a camp for privileged children. Oh, yeah, that camp is <laughs> making fun of rich white people. Absolutely. Absolutely. My brother, passion's hostage. I seek justice. Denied. I shall not submit. I shall conquer. I shall rise. My name is Gomez Adams, and I have seen evil. I have seen horror. I have seen the unholy maggots which feast in the dark recesses of the human soul. They're at camp. The camp scenes... The, the camp, camp scenes. scenes. It's, I, it's I, weird because it's almost its own movie. Like, you, you could have just split this I into two different movies. I want a whole movie of the camp scenes. I want a whole movie of it, too. The directors of this camp are portrayed uh, by Christine Baranski and Peter McNichol. Of Ally McBeal fame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Christine Baranski of Birdcage fame. Yes. When they're um, jumping up and down, like, because having fun is what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. And their names are Gary Granger and Becky Martin Granger. <laughs> I think a lot of the jokes went over my head when I, because I think I've only seen this movie once. So when I first saw this, I got like the general tone of those scenes, but now they're all much funnier now that oh my I God. can appreciate the humor. Yes. There. And that's especially what I think you can really feel like Paul Rednick specifically, like his writing. Those scenes feel very different than anything in the first movie. I really agree. And I think there is so much that carries through from the first film. And I do think there are a lot of jokes in the first one that work on a couple levels. But in this, it's like there are jokes that work on like two completely different levels to adults and children. Yet both are equally funny at the same time. And that's why I like love rewatching this movie because it still makes me laugh so much. I think it's just so funny how much of this movie most both movies but mostly this one is set up punchline set up punchline like it's a sitcom like a three camera sitcom like an old school one where it's like blah 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 blah, laugh track it's just so well written because these jokes are so tight and they're just so well crafted and like almost every scene is just here's Wednesday giving like a (laughs) one-liner while they're waiting to like dive into the water here's Wednesday doing another one-liner why are you dressed like somebody died wait (laughs) (laughs) or when um when Morticia when Morticia is reading Cat in the Hat and she turns the page oh no he lives I love that that was one of my favorite moments Oh, so also, great. when Wednesday's telling the ghost story and it oh, yeah. ends with all of their noses grew back. <laughs> all their old noses grew yeah. back. It's so great. I did grow up singing the turkey song every Thanksgiving. <laughs> in the in the locker room at yes. your school? Okay. No. Happy, happy turkey day. Hunger pains will go away. When it's over, we will say happy turkey day. <laughs> I am a turkey. Kill me. <laughs>
A fun Adam's facts. The man behind Step Up is responsible for the choreography of Eat Me, <laughs> the song at the Thanksgiving Plays Dance number. Adam Shankman, who directed A Walk to Remember, Hairspray, the Step Up films, and multiple episodes of Glee, choreographed the Plays Dance numbers. Yay. Yay. There is a scene where Debbie is jerking off Fester off camera. I did not really realize that when I was little, but I got it this time. Yeah, I mean, there's so much about this movie that is like inherently way more dark and morbid and also absurd. The baby that Morticia has literally in the first moments of the movie, like the first line of the movie is, I'm going to have a baby right now. And the soft highlighting across her face is still there when she gives birth. Yes, it's so great. Uh, and the baby's name, of course, is Pubert. Which, uh, for some more Adams facts, Adam's was facts. the original Adam's name facts. that Charles Adams wanted for Pugsley, but it was rejected for network TV in the 60s. <laughs> so oh. they saved it. <laughs> oh, Pubert. And uh, Wednesday's name, by the way, just comes from the Mother Goose poem, uh, Wednesday's Child is Full of Woe. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I thought that Christina Ricci did an even better job in much, this movie. Much. And I mean, yeah. she just said there's more to do. And it was really nice rewatching these scenes um, as a little Jewish kid. It was nice to have a Jewish little boy on screen. And even, even though he was seen as a nerd in the world of the movie, like he's a hero with Wednesday. And I yeah. thought that was really nice Wednesday to see. Wednesday has a love interest at camp. His name is Joel and he's asthmatic and he's played by David Crumholtz. He's now a character mm-hmm. actor. Um, and yeah, I really liked their relationship and I liked how they play off of each other's characters. And it really, there was this shot of Wednesday and, um, and the boy sitting next to the water in silhouette and it was a beautiful shot and they had a funny exchange and I just, it's something that the movie didn't even really need to have and you, you wouldn't really expect something that beautiful in a movie like this. And I thought it was just really nice to see like a first kiss and it brought me back to, being a little kid and when I would see first kisses in movies like it meant a lot to see that before I had had my first kiss like it was something that I you know uh it was just meaningful to see that as a little kid it's because you just are wondering yeah, like I what's my was, first kiss gonna be I like I think that was one of my first kisses that I saw on screen especially one where one of the people receiving it was a total nerd <laughs> and yeah like that resonated with me a lot too like and but again like for me like this movie was when Wednesday Adams and Christina Ricci became personal role models of mine. Yeah, um, I think that the age <laughs> that she is in this movie makes a lot more sense for the character. And it's just like, it feels like that's the age that you can really have a lot of fun with that character because mm-hmm. she's interacting with other girls who are kind of discovering boys and fashion and stuff like that. And her as a contrast to that is what's so funny. Absolutely. Well, and also, like, I think, again, setting it at a camp provides you so many more stock experiences to, like, play off of. Mm-hmm. Like, I love, like, they have archery class, and uh, Joel's character just literally gives up trying to shoot the arrow and just throws it. Uh, and Wednesday kills an American bald eagle. <laughs> um, Aren't they extinct? They, they are now. They are now. <laughs> Um, but I, one of my favorite parts of their uh, character arc is when uh, Wednesday, Pugsley, and Joel get caught trying to escape the camp, and they're put in the Happy Hut, and they're forced to watch Disney movies over and over. And the Brady Bunch. Uh-huh. And the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Listen and to Michael Jackson's, what is it, Heal the World? Something like that? Yeah, or Free yeah, Willy song? Something like that. Originally, they were going to have Michael Jackson make a music video for this movie, but that fell through. Aww. That would have been too scary for children. <laughs> yeah, that would have been in a hard R film. Um, 
and at the end of that, I think one of the best performance moments, especially in any kind of movie like this, is Christina Ricci's Wednesday character smiles. Oh my god, I have that in my notes that it's like honestly a great performance when she like fakes her. It is. She tries to fake her smile. Absolutely, it's yeah. horrifying. <laughs> it's so funny because you're watching someone smile and yet it's scary because you're like, that's a person who's never <laughs> smiled and should not smile. I'm scared. <laughs> And that whole I want to laugh monologue that she does like right around the same point when she's trying to convince them that she's changed is really funny. Great writing. This movie's so fucking funny, guys. Yeah, I just want—I just want to give more funny quotes. I love. Um, so someone asks Morticia, "These Adams men, where do you find them?" She says, "It has to be damp." <laughs> That's why it's so, they're so funny because there's such inventive ways of being like, okay, so we have these dark characters. What's like the most inventive way we can like play around with like goth shit? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think it's worth like noting that both Morticia and Wednesday are very deadpan and very, they they don't have the exact same kind of delivery because Morticia is more like breathy and she's friendlier kind of sexy. and happier. But I think that they both like. A, like, the jokes work the best because they kind of toss them off in this kind of sardonic or kind of casual way. Like, there's not a lot of, like, I'm saying a joke kind of mm-hmm. uh, to their characters. Whereas I think, like, the men in this movie are much more broad and it's just a different kind of humor. Well, their characters are much hammier, too. Yeah. But but I also think that, I don't know, like, maybe your taste in comedy is just different and, like, not liking more hammy comedic roles. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I know I've talked yeah. about that before. And, like, when we were comparing, like, Dumb and Dumber to Romy and Michelle. And especially, like, Birdcage. I yeah. find Romy and Michelle so much more funny because it's, like, relatable people. And they're often, like, saying something kind of clever. Or the joke is clever, even if, like, they're not clever. And when people are just acting like idiots, I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't relate to that. Like, I just don't find it as funny, usually. We're not shy, we're contagious. (laughs) (laughs) I did occasionally have, like, some story problems with this movie, but it often, it mostly... You can shove those sorrows away in a sack right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, shut your your damn mouth. This movie's perfect. So I was mad. He's a lot nicer about that than I am, but okay. (laughs) I was mad that Thing was driving, and then they finally showed him, like, pushing on the brake, and I was like, okay. Still defies logic, but I'm willing to go with that. So if they show the shoe leather. The baby has a mustache. (laughs) The baby is... Okay, I get really confused by the baby in this movie. Like, Chris, again, much like ookiness, we're all confused by pubert. We grow into it. That's how it works. What are you confused about with the baby? He loses his mustache and becomes blonde. (laughs) And then all of a sudden... Like I, mm. That's why it's a cartoon. Like, it's a straight-up cartoon. It turns from a bad baby to a good angelic baby, and that's why it's terrifying to the Adamses. The whole idea with these movies is, let's write some funny jokes. Like, no one's ever in danger. You never think someone's going to die or or Joan Cusack's character is going to get away with it. Like, it's mm. just, let's just have some funny jokes. So it just feels like a cartoon sitcom to me. Yeah, I just... I f- feel like the like stuff at camp is so funny and is so rude because it's really making fun of privileged people and white people and all these things and you know it has a even a kind of a point of view about Thanksgiving where like part of what Wednesday's doing is pointing out that Thanksgiving mm-hmm. is a problematic holiday and then when you pair that with something that's so cartoonish like 
I don't mind like the baby joke in general, but I wish it had just been done in a way that felt like slightly more consistent and a little bit more real world. Obviously, this is never going to be like the most realistic. Like one of the early, the one of the first scenes with the baby when it's with the kids, they throw it off the roof. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> I hate everything <laughs> oh with the baby God. in this movie except for when it turns blonde and she reads it cat in the hat. <laughs> then I like it. <laughs> But, like, that stuff is just, like, really, like, babies in danger as our, <laughs> is one of our, the hallmarks of our. All the movies that we watch has a baby in danger. Yeah. I, I, I'm just not into this baby <laughs> in this danger. <laughs> so, I think I had a thing for Joan Cusack in this movie when I was younger. Because her boobs, like, just brought flashbacks to me being younger and being, like, kind of entranced by her body in this movie. She's wearing this, like, crop top white outfit, like, at the end when she's, like, going over, like, Malibu Barbie. And it's just, like, her boobs are, like beautiful <laughs> I don't know how Becky, else to say it Becky Joan Cusack is she won a Golden Globes for those <laughs> oh. god, god damn it did she actually win oh I don't know oh, I was making she a joke about been. boobs okay <laughs> uh, yeah I I could agree with that she was a very memorable part of this movie I remember that line Malibu Barbie having not <laughs> seen this in a really long time I don't know if I ever saw it after the first time but it was basically I remembered Malibu Barbie and burning a girl at the stake and that was <laughs> what was seared into my brain from this movie and just that that white outfit did stick with me too I mm-hmm. mean, she's like a strangely alluring character like you could watch a whole movie just about oh my that God, woman I would I don't enjoy hurting anybody I don't like guns or bombs or electric chairs but sometimes people just won't listen and so I have to use persuasion and slides. My parents, Sharon and Dave, generous, doting, or were they? All I ever wanted was a ballerina Barbie in her pretty pink tutu. My birthday. I was 10. And do you know what they got me? Malibu Barbie. Malibu Barbie. The nightmare. They had to go. This movie's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think the the key insights into this movie are it's great, and uh, Chris has a sliding scale of baby approval. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I would say, like, I have both of these on DVD now. I both I own them both on VHS. Um, <laughs> Did you get the DVDs from Burger King? No, I got them from Amazon. (laughs) It's not as exciting. (laughs) What what food do they serve? (laughs) Anything your heart desires. Um, I would say that I like the Addams Family movie, but when I'm in an Addams Family mood, I'm going to put on Addams Family values. And plus the whole Thanksgiving thing that makes it seem like there's not a lot of Thanksgiving movies out there. Like, really, really, really small number of Thanksgiving movies, surprisingly, because of how many holiday movies there are. And this is just one of them that I'm always putting on. Well, and like, I'm having trouble thinking of any offhand, but especially any that talk about Thanksgiving the holiday in the way that this does. Like, in terms oh, of no. talking about the actual history? Like, I can't think of no. any movie at all. I mean, there's Home for the Holidays, and there's, uh, oh, what was that movie with Katie Holmes that I actually really like? Pieces of April. There's mm. very few. And this yeah. is this is the number one Thanksgiving movie for me. And it's kind of weird, because it's a holiday that pretty much everyone here celebrates, even more so than Christmas. Mm-hmm. And yet, 
and it's like a very family friendly holiday. I guess it's maybe because there's not like that much iconography that you can really use. Of I mean, you got turkeys and Native Americans and pilgrims. Well, you have. It seems like it's ripe for like horns fam- are plenty. Seems like it's ripe for families fighting. Like because you have to get together with your family, and so mm-hmm. it seems like there would just be more Thanksgiving movies than there are. Um, but this is the number one Thanksgiving movie for me. And it takes place in the summer. Again, with the holiday, like it's all over the place that it's, that it's that it's a holiday movie, but it takes in place summer. in the summer. I did question the logic. I was like, why are they putting on a holiday? Because play? these movies came out during the holidays. Yeah. And also because that's the vision of the Grangers, Chris. I was I let it slide. I let it slide. <laughs> oh, I also have to point out that first of all, Amanda Buckman, the blonde kind You of, really like her. <laughs> Do you want to know why? <laughs> oh, my God. Wait. Do I know why? I don't know. Do you? <laughs> Just talk. Just say it. What do you think she might have appeared in? Was she the Ice Princess? No, oh, she was okay. not the Ice Princess. Guys, Chris loves the Ice Princess from Batman Returns. Yes. She is my... <laughs> Everything. <mother? laughs> Everything. No, what was Amanda Buckman in? Amanda Buckman was in the first Adams Family as the Girl Scout. Oh. Yes. Oh, my God. You're right. And she was played by Mercedes McNabb, who plays Harmony on Buffy. So, she was a major character on Buffy. Oh. So, uh, I was very pleased by that. And if only I had known that that little girl who would disturb me so much when I first saw this movie and thought she was burned at stake would would then be on on Buffy. I, I didn't know. Well, so our conclusions, I guess, are rewatch it and burn at the stake. <laughs> but which song is worse the whoop adam's whoop or <laughs> which one is worse or what was the first the mc Just the adam's family yeah yeah see i Adam's play... family rap that's what it's yeah. called uh i guess the second one is worse because i remember the first one and i don't even remember the the second one it is so weird that like i looked at this the rest of the soundtrack and it's all like r and b and rap i'm like I, I know this was like an era when soundtracks were a much bigger thing and they would often just kind of put together an album of artists and like kind of be like, hey, it's the movie soundtrack and the songs wouldn't even necessarily be in the movie, but it just doesn't go together. Well, I feel like a lot of that came from, yeah, like you're saying, like the fact that soundtracks became a thing separate from the movie itself. Even things that weren't on the soundtrack within the movie would become part of the released soundtrack. And I also think that they ended up starting having to do that just because R&B and hip hop became so much more popular in the mainstream, you know, because the same thing started happening for movie soundtracks like Batman Returns and Batman Forever. Even the Tim Burton Batman had prints all over it, you know? But at least those songs were in the movie. In some cases, yeah. In some cases. Yeah, and I just, like, it would make more sense if it was, like, more, like, gothy emo music or something like just that. Just the monster just mash like, over and over. <laughs> I was working in the lab late one night. <laughs> so that's our beloved and slightly less than beloved, but still very positive. Uh, not not unanimously positive. <laughs> it's okay. I give you the mash theme. You give us Adam's family value. You liked Joan Cusack. Trade? That's all I wanted out of this. <laughs> I did. I loved her. I loved Angelica Houston. I loved end of list. <laughs> Yeah, so watch Adam's Family for the female characters. 
So after Adam's Family Values released and was a flop, Raul Julia very tragically died of cancer in 1994. And that combined with the stardom of Christina Ricci basically prevented any more sequels with that particular cast of actors. But several years later, in 1998, they released a direct-to-video sequel called Adam's Family Reunion that starred Tim Curry and Daryl Hannah replacing the lead roles. I watched the first six minutes of this on YouTube. It is... Okay, first of all, the first, like, three or four minutes doesn't even have any of the Adams Family in it. It's just a postman battling the house. And that might work for, like, 20 seconds. It is three minutes long. And it Jesus. is the worst thing I've ever seen already. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as, like, Daryl Hannah and oh, Tim man. Curry... Love them both, but... I love them both. But as soon as they walk on, I'm just like, oh, bargain basement, like... It looks like they're wearing Halloween costumes in this They're wearing Halloween (laughs) costumes. And I couldn't take it any longer. I was planning on watching, like, a little bit to talk about it here on this podcast, but when they got to the person that played Fester, he is no Christopher Lloyd. And if you thought you had a problem with, like, Christopher Lloyd's performance, oh my god, this man made me shut the YouTube screen off. (laughs) Everyone was, yeah, very bargain basement. Even, like, Daryl Hannah, who's a good actress in a lot of things, but is the last person you would cast as Morticia Adams. Like, it's just uh, not. It's just not. It doesn't... It's just... <laughs> if like, you wanted me to, like, make a joke about who should play Morticia Adams, I'd be like, oh, Daryl Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like if she started out as pubert. Daryl Hannah is the the blonde, curly-haired version of pubert. <laughs> right. And you cannot transmogrify her into a goth. But even Tim Curry was bad. Like, mm, these, these are good actors who clearly got paid enough to, to, to appear in <laughs> the this. The check's cleared. Yeah, oh, man. I think they all had a drug habit that they needed to support or something in order to do this. Anyway, don't watch that. <laughs> no, it's, it's really funny to see this and then so many other <laughs> things that we've covered having these really bad Brady sequels. in the White House. Mm, the Romeo and Michelle movie oh, uh-huh. on ABC Family. It's just... Like every Jim Carrey movie had like a sequel mm-hmm. that he wasn't in. They're not trying really for artistic merit in the first place. It's a cash grab. But even then, it's like, just don't. Don't do that. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't know what would conceivably teach the studios that lesson. I mean, this There's movie was obviously money. cheap. Yeah, I guess. They were able to get the costumes from, like, a Party Halloween City. costume <laughs> store in, like, January. Spirit Halloween store on clearance. It's just so bad. but So maybe it made, like, a good profit, but it, it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. And then there was a Broadway musical uh, in the recent years of The Addams Family. Yeah, in 2010, it starred Nathan Lane and B.B. Newworth. Did you ever see it? I haven't, no. Hmm, that's surprising. I yeah. thought you lived on Broadway. <laughs> I haven't lived on Broadway in quite some time. No, I missed that one. Well, yeah, none of us have seen it, so we won't comment. But <laughs> There was also, yeah, an animated series that I remember that started in 1992 and was also pretty short-lived. Also a Canadian show called The New Adams Family in 1998. So they're still kicking around with This time they're Canadian? <laughs> Adams Family, eh? The Adams family. (laughs) (laughs) And on the next episode of the When We Were Young podcast. We are talking about a 1997 film about an ill-fated romance aboard a sea vessel. You may or may not have heard of it. Is it the SS Minnow? Are we talking about Gilligan's Island? Is it Seabiscuit? (laughs) That's a (laughs) horse. 
<laughs> was Seabiscuit an aquatic horse? <laughs> I would have I like liked how, it better. I like how we're asking you like we didn't all talk about the movie that we're going to do next. Chris never wants to say the name of the movie. We're doing Titanic. <laughs> you got to stop it with that joke, too. It's every episode where you pretend not to know the thing we're talking about. I thought it was Speed 2. That is enough. <laughs> that is enough. Just cut that it is off enough. There. We've had enough of the ookiness, the spookiness, the creepiness, and the kookiness. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this audiophonic adventure and you want to spook along with us on further sojourns, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show if you want to give us any reviews or suggest future episodes. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. I'm altogether Uki and Chris. I'm sorry, it didn't feel right unless we completed it. I know. That's why I'm glad you did. Yay. Yay. Fun. I'm not perky. <laughs> That's for damn sure. But I want to be. You do? I want to smile and sing and dance and be Pocahontas in Gary's vision. Oh, darling, do you really mean it? Isn't she pretty? She's scary!